All right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Welcome again to H2O. I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining us. Those of you who are here and those of you joining online, we are so thrilled that you're here. We hope that you had a great Thanksgiving, however you decided to celebrate that. Um, we are wrapping up our series in Ruth this morning and kind of zooming out and looking at Ruth as a whole. Um, for us, when I think about Thanksgiving, it's in our family, it's always Thanksgiving plus our daughter Naomi's birthday. Um, it's kind of cool that one of our kids bears the names of one of the main characters in the book of Ruth. So we have a girl who just turned five yesterday named Naomi. She goes by Nene in our house um, more often than Naomi, and she turned five. Uh, COVID birthday number two, so it looked a little different, of course. Um, one of the things that Tiffany and I love about watching our kids grow up is that they start to get excited about their siblings' birthdays, and they want to give them presents. And I think that's one of the coolest things. Um, our kids are not perfect. Uh, disclaimer, our kids are not perfect. Oftentimes, it's really rough in our house, um, and my kids are probably listening to this right now, and they would agree with me. Um, but yesterday, some really cool things happened inside of our house. So um, Mason gave Naomi a Nerf gun as a birthday gift. Um, and you might think that that was just because like he's really into that and so the gift really represents more of what he wants than what she wants. But Naomi loves playing Nerf gun battles with Mason. And so he got her her own little Nerf gun. Phoebe gave uh, Nene one of her precious American Girl dolls. So that's a big deal in our house complete with all the clothes and the accessories that go with that doll. She gifted it to her sister. Phoebe got up really early in the morning because she wanted to make breakfast in bed for her sister. And so she woke me up really early and we prepared this breakfast in bed. She put streamers all over her new scooter that she got the day before from her grandparents. She made a pin the slippers on the picture of Naomi game with a poster board and little cotton balls as the slippers. Um, she just got so excited to bless her sister. It was really cool. Even we noticed Mason, he's 10. He made an extra effort to play with Naomi. They arranged this game of dodgeball in our basement in our house. Like I said, some days are rougher, and, and there's battling and there's fighting, but yesterday it was this really beautiful moment to see our kids be excited to bless their sister. And we all know this, right, that there's this enormous pull on our lives to be selfish, to be self-centered. Not just for kids, but for all of us, right? We know that that's the dominant pull in our world is to turn inward and to be selfish. And it was like yesterday we got this little glimpse of our kids not just living for themselves, but living to bless their sister. It's funny that that is such a struggle for us because we have staked our lives. We've staked our eternities on a savior who came to give his life away. We staked our lives on a God who is utterly selfless, who came not to be served, but to serve, to joyfully surrender himself for the lost, for you and me. So the question that I want to sort of shape our reflection of Ruth chapter four today is this big question, what does it look like to live for the sake of other people? What does it look like to live for the sake of others? This is exactly what God calls us to. The grand narrative of the whole Bible 
in God's choosing of his people Israel, and that stream running all the way through every page of the Bible is that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. That is a dominant, major, massive theme in all of the Bible. We are made to give our lives away. And Jesus would tell us that that is actually true life. That is abundant life. It is offensive to the gospel to be content with our own salvation. It is offensive to the gospel to be content with our own salvation and sanctification. It is deeply unbiblical to stop at our own blessing. And the book of Ruth reveals a couple of people who show us what it looks like to live for the sake of others. Ruth and Boaz. I'm going to talk mostly today about Ruth because the book bears her name, and that tells us something about the way that the people of God have interpreted this story throughout all of history. And because as I read the story over and over again in the weeks leading up to this, I was really struck afresh with just how incredible was her commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi. I was blown away. And it's not to take anything away from Boaz. We're going to talk about him here in a minute. But I, I want to talk today mostly about Ruth. So let me give you a two-minute crash course on what has happened in case you haven't been tracking with us in this series or you've forgotten everything from the past few weeks, okay? So I'm gonna, I promise I'm going to do this quick. The first three chapters of Ruth in bullet point form are this. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech flee Judah. They flee the land of God's people and they go to Moab because there's a famine. Okay, the Moabites, where they went, they're descendants of Sodom. Not great people. Not, a, not a necessarily a, a, a move that would have been looked upon highly um, in that culture, but they were struggling. They were starving. And so they go to Moab. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And now her lifeline in a patriarchal society is her two sons. The way that she will have safety, comfort, be provided for are her two sons. They marry Moabite women, would have been frowned upon. Those two sons die, and now Naomi is incredibly vulnerable. Her future is very bleak. Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, these two Moabite, Moabite women, Go back home. Go back. Worship your gods. Go back to your homeland. Remarry. And Orpah, when you read it, you always think Oprah. I know, but it's Orpah. She decides to stay in Moab. She, she goes. She like stays in Moab. But Ruth says, I'm sticking with you, Naomi. And then they go back to Judah. They have no food. And so Ruth gleans barley from the field to provide food. It's this really cool thing, and I could geek out on this for a really long time, but one of the things I love about studying the Old Testament is you just see the heart of God in the little things. And so God made this, this command, this law, that the outer edge of the fields was not to be touched. It was not to be harvested so that the poor, the immigrant, the widow would be provided for and would have food. And so Ruth goes and she does that. She gleans from the field. And it just so happens that she was gleaning in the field of a guy named Boaz, and Boaz treats her with kindness. He protects her from the men who would have certainly tried to assault her because she was a Moabite. Ruth tells Naomi that she gleaned from Boaz's field. So she goes back and she tells her mother-in-law, hey, I gleaned from this guy Boaz's field. And Naomi freaks out because this is one of the redeemers. 
And you've heard us talk about this again, but just to give you the crash course, a reminder that there was a law in the Old Testament that allowed for the wife of a deceased husband to be taken care of. This thing called a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer was basically meant in a patriarchal society to make sure that a woman who was vulnerable would be taken care of and protected. Because women in that day and age could not inherit the land of their dead husband. And so Naomi says to Ruth, go do, go do this thing that seems really weird. Go sneak into Boaz's um, tent and lay at, the, at, lay at his feet and tell him that we need redeemed. And so Ruth does it. And Boaz says, okay, I will redeem your mother-in-law. I will, I will do it. But then he is like, wait, there might be someone else who's actually first in line to be this kinsman redeemer. And that's where we pick up today. Let me say this at this point. It is a scandalously beautiful story full of all these cultural shockers. A Moabite woman, an outsider, who's not historically of the people of God, has been brought into this cosmic story of God bringing salvation to all the world. We'll learn about that here in a little bit. It's the Moabite, Ruth, who has astonishing faith. Naomi's struggling Naomi is wavering in her faith. Naomi is down and out. She's depressed, and rightfully so. And, and it's the Moabite who trusts God. It's a crazy, it's a wild story. So let's read Ruth 4. We're just going to do 1 through 17. And then we'll dive in and look more at the, at the life of Ruth throughout this entire book. So Ruth 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down, there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. This is hilarious. You take your shoe off. That's how you did a deal back then. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all of the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malone. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malone's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Epathra, and be famous in Bethlehem. 
through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay, so amazing, and it moves into the genealogy. We'll talk about that uh, here in a little bit. Amazing story. The other redeemer first says yes, then changes his mind. We don't know why. There's a lot of speculation, but clearly he thinks that doing it will endanger his own estate, his own inheritance, and the, you know the, the, his descendants. And so he doesn't do it. So re- Boaz redeems Naomi. Elimelech will now have a legacy. He will not be forgotten, which is a huge deal in the ancient world. Ruth gives birth to Obed, who would become the grandfather of David. The story began with death, with tragedy, with famine, with darkness, and it ends with life, with new life. Amazing bookends. But here's the thing that I I want us to notice, what I really want to talk about today. Boaz is the redeemer. So he does his role, the thing that only he can do in that world, in that day and age, in that culture. He is the redeemer. But there are actually two other redeemers in this story. There's one that's in the story, and then there's one that the story points to. The one that's in the story is Ruth. The one that it points to ultimately is Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not taking anything away from Boaz. He demonstrates incredible kindness and generosity. But before Boaz could officially redeem Naomi, Ruth was already redeeming her. Ruth was already fighting for her. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read one thing that was spoken about Ruth that gives us a glimpse into this massive role that she played. And then I want to read three things that she said, one from each of the chapters leading up to this fourth chapter that give us a glimpse into her heart and that ultimately teach us what it looks like to live for the sake of others. Now, did you notice in verses 14 and 15, it's one of these things that you just read and it's easy to miss it. But when the women of the town are celebrating, they say this, right? Praise be to the Lord, verse 14, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. They're celebrating with Naomi that she will be redeemed, that her husband's legacy will go on. May he become famous throughout Israel. Verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, here it is, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Okay, so better than seven sons. The idea of having seven sons in the ancient world would be the, it's like the epitome of being blessed. If you are a woman, sorry about that, um, having seven sons is the dream. We might say in in our day that it's living your best life now would be having seven sons. And so what they're saying is, okay, Naomi, imagine your best life, all right? 
You got it? Your best possible life. Ruth is better than that. This is an astounding statement in that culture. Ruth is better than seven sons. It would have made no sense. It would have totally undone all of their understanding in that day and age. You see, there's something happening here, something amazing that I think God doesn't want us to miss. It's that Ruth is redeeming her mother-in-law. She's setting the stage so that Boaz could do the thing that only he could do. Ruth is the first redeemer of Naomi. Boaz has the title. He does the official act. Ruth gets the book named after her. She embodies living for the sake of another. So what I want to do again is I want to look at three things she says, one in each of the chapters that reveal her character, that teach us what it looks like to live for the sake of another, that we too might do the same. Okay, so back to chapter one, the, probably the most popular, the most well-known. We've covered these already. I'm just going to fly through them as I try to paint this picture. So the husbands die, and Naomi says, just go back. Go back to your people. Go back to Moab. Worship your gods. Get remarried. And Ruth says in chapter 1, verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So the first thing that we see in Ruth's life that, that sketch this, sketches this picture of what it looks like to live for, for another is covenantal loyalty. Covenantal loyalty. Guys, I think that we were made for this. I think all of us, married or unmarried, were made for this. Of course, in marriage, we do, we vow, we make a commitment to be you know, unified with that person till death do us part, absolutely. But I think all of us were made to be devoted to each other like this. The book of Romans tells us, point blank, be devoted to one another. Jesus tells us that there's no greater love, right, than he who would lay down his life for his friend. You don't lay down your life for someone that you're not deeply committed to. The first thing that comes into my mind is to think about, have I, have I lived this way? Obviously, in my, in my marriage, I want to live with that kind of loyalty, that sort of commitment. But beyond that, have I, have I lived this? And I think back to the earliest days and we were still living here in Bowling Green, and we were about to plant the church in Kent. And a group of about 15 of us back in 2008, 10-plus years ago, were planning to move across the state and start a new church. And we had this whole ceremony, uh, dark room, candlelit. Sounds a little cult-like, I know, but trust me, it was all legit. It was all above the board. And we made that evening an official commitment to one another. We, we knew that church planting would be hard. We knew that there would be temptation to, to run away. We knew that what we were signing up for would be marked with pain and difficulty. And we made, through like some written cards, we, we just vowed to be committed to one another and to this church plant. And I know that that may seem this idea of being committed to one another like a weird kind of bondage. But as you know, in, in God's upside-down kingdom, what appears to be a threat to our life 
is actually the pathway to joy. And so as you think through your life, I just wonder, do you have anyone in your life like that? Again, married or not, do you have anyone that you're just deeply committed to, that you're loyal to, that you stick with, even when things get difficult? If we're going to be a people who live for the sake of others, we have to be committed like that. So the second thing comes in Ruth chapter 2. Verse 2, the first half of it, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And this seems like just this thing that she's going to do, right? She's going to go get the food so that way her and Naomi will be provided for with food, with sustenance. But what she was actually doing was manual labor, hard manual labor all day long in the scorching heat in a place where she very well could have been attacked and assaulted. And she says, I'm going to go do that. I'm not going to let us starve. I will go. I will risk. I will do hard work. It was not a glamorous job by any means. So the second thing that we see is costly humility. Costly humility. This is not a professional athlete saying, I give all the glory to God. No offense to those professional athletes. This is a decision to live in a way that costs her something. It's choosing to forget about ourselves, to serve and sacrifice for the sake of others. Do we do that? Do you and I do that in our lives? If we're going to live for the sake of others, we have got to get comfortable being made uncomfortable in humility. Last thing from chapter three, we just covered this last week. It's that story where in the middle of the night, verse eight, something startled the man. So she's in his tent, right? He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Again, in essence, she's saying, will you marry me? Will you redeem my mother-in-law? A Moabite woman asking an Israelite man, will you marry me? Going to him in the middle of the night to make this audacious request. It's mind-boggling. The third thing we see in Ruth is unflinching courage. Why would she do such a crazy, bold, audacious thing? Because she knew it was the only way that Naomi would have a decent life. So what does it look like to live for the sake of others? What does that look like? What does it look like to give our lives away to the people around us? I suppose it looks a whole lot like Ruth's love for and commitment to Naomi. Well, where do we get that kind of love? This is where I want to end. Where do we get that kind of love and commitment? Well, we get it from the other Redeemer that's hidden in this story. The Redeemer who we get a glimpse of, who the very end in the mention that this child Obed would be the grandfather of David. The hint is right there. Where do we get that kind of love? You see, the story of Ruth Right, the work of Boaz, like so many of the great stories in the Old Testament, they point forward to the final perfect redemption that Jesus Christ would bring. Ruth's life foreshadows the life of the Redeemer who was yet to come. Loyalty, humility, and courage. We're going to move in here in a moment to a time of communion, and we're going to remember that Jesus Christ lived those things with perfection. Complete, 
fullness. Jesus was and is perfect in loyalty, perfect in humility, and perfect in courage. We're going to remember as we take communion that Jesus was loyal to us as he went silently to the cross. Right? He stood toe-to-toe with Pontius Pilate. He could have fought. He could have done battle. But he submitted to the will of the Father. He was loyal to us. He has continued throughout our lives to be kind, to be gentle, to forgive. He has committed to never abandoning us who are in him. We remember that Jesus was perfectly loyal. We remember that Jesus was humble in every way, in his coming, in his living, and in his dying. The God of the universe would succumb, would submit to the kind of death that was reserved for petty criminals. And we're going to remember that he courageously gave his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Ruth helped redeem Naomi from destitution. And we remember her, and we celebrate her, and we we see her as this portrait of the Savior who would come, but Jesus redeems us from death. May we never stop remembering what Jesus has rescued us from. Friends, we were dead in our sin, and he pulled us up out of the grave, and he has lavished us with unending love. Again, as we move into communion, I want to read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it says this, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's amazing reality that's unfolding for us as we partake in communion. Paul tells us here, he tells the Corinthians that when we take communion, we look back, we remember what Jesus did for us in his coming and in his dying and in his rising, and then we we look forward to his return, to when the world will be set right for all of eternity. We have been given so much. It's fitting that in this season, right, we're moving from Thanksgiving Thanksgiving into Advent, into this remembrance that Jesus came for us to sit and just try in our feeble attempt to calculate the unbelievable blessings that God has given us. And then to move out of that and ask the question, how am I going to respond? Will I give it away? Will I then turn and live for the sake of someone else. My prayer that we would be a church full of men and women who joyfully give our lives away. Jesus promised us in John 13 that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's what's at stake. When we give our lives away to the people around us, the world knows our God. Let's pray. And again, as we move into communion, there's a couple of stations all around the room. We're going to sing a couple of songs. So as you feel led, we just invite you to get up, grab one, take communion in your own timing as we end here in worship. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the example of Ruth. We thank you for the way in which she points 
to you, King Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. God, would you grant us by the power of your Holy Spirit the vision, the endurance, the power, the humility to live for the sake of others. Lord, would you make us a people who are marked by, who are set apart by our commitment to the people around us. And ultimately, Lord, would you draw men and women to yourself that as we live this way, that they might know that the one that we serve is the one who died for them, that you, God, have rescued the lost, that you invite us into relationship with you. Pray that before we even walk to the back and grab the little cup of juice and of bread, that we would search our own hearts as your scriptures command us, Lord, are we living for the sake of other people? God, have we become spiritually self-righteous? Have we turned inward and only concerned with our own spiritual lives? Or even worse, God, just things of this world. Would repentance happen in this room in these next few minutes? And for those who do not know you yet, those who are on the fence, who have not made a commitment to live for you and to follow you with their whole hearts, God, would this be a day that they would do that? Holy Spirit, we invite you here now to do your work, to convict us, to heal us, to speak to us. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. Thank you that you will come again. In your name we pray. Amen.